We all eat fermented foods, yogurt, kimchi or sauerkraut, pickles, beer and wine, to name just a few. Actually, if you take out the alcoholic drinks, fermented foods are known to be great for your gut microbiome. But why is that actually the case? You'll find out in this episode. Some of the earliest archaeological evidence of fermentation is 13,000 years old. These residues of beer were found in Haifa, in Israel. For the longest time, humanity used fermentation without a clue what it's all about. You may remember Louis Pasteur from our, you may remember Louis Pasteur from our food history episode on canning. He is known as the father of fermentation, as he uncovered the process in 1859. Pasteur proved that living cells yeast were making sugar to alcohol, and that a microscopic plant caused the souring of milk, the lactic acid fermentation. You will hear more about it in a bit. Pasteur figured microorganisms are responsible for good and for bad fermentations, which spoil the taste of milk, wine and vinegar. He tested whether heat could sterilize products, and he was right. We now know this process as pasteurization. That also led him to suspect that microorganisms may also cause disease and started off the development of vaccines. During this season, we covered biomass, precision and gas fermentation already. Before we move on to other topics, we round it up by looking into the past, traditional fermentation, also known as microbial fermentation. You don't need any pre-knowledge for this episode, you can dive right in. You will hear from Lars Williams, co-founder of Empirical Spirits, the man behind the world's most innovative distillery, according to Forbes. They incorporate fermentation deeply into their process of making novel alcoholic drinks and see themselves as a flavor company. I found this talk super insightful and hope you will enjoy it. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Let's try to zoom a bit out into general fermentation applications. There are three different types of like broad-scale fermentation pathways, you can say. Maybe we can talk about them one by one. What is the lactic acid fermentation? Lactic fermentation is the process that makes kimchi delicious. Lactic acid and yeast are the two most dominant wild yeast or microbe strains. Lactic acid is lactobacillus. It's a microorganism that processes sugars into lactic acid. So in making kimchi, you essentially take traditionally like a cabbage variety, lightly bruise the cell structure so that the salt and liquid will have better access to the cell structure. And then you preserve it in a clay pot. Traditionally in South Korea, it was actually buried underground. And most people don't think of cabbage as very sweet, but it actually has like a relatively high sugar source. And that breaks down in the electric fermentation process to give a really pleasant sourness. Initially, that was a preservation technique, but people soon found out that boring cabbage are becoming quite delicious after the electric fermentation. And electric fermentation is like many other fermentations we're talking about that is very cross-cultural. So in Germany, it would be sauerkraut. They're the, essentially the same process. One has Northern European spices and one has South Korean spices. So interesting, because I personally don't like kimchi as much. 
And I've been wondering whether it's actually a learned taste. A lot of kids, for example, don't like coffee and it's something you get used to. Do you think that liking fermented foods is something that is just completely in default natural or an acquired taste? I'm a, a little bit biased in my opinion, <laughs> but I would say that people have a natural inclination to look for fermented food. Think about miso, you're taking a protein structure that's doesn't have a high flavor concentration, but when it's the miso is broken down through the fermentation process, it becomes very umami rich. So in that case, we have a natural proclivity towards mm. looking for that end result of the fermentation. In the same way that insects and a lot of animals will look for hyper ripe fruit, mm. the beginning of the fermentation process signals the fruit is actually quite ripe. There's been some recent studies about a kind of monkey that essentially has an affection for fermented food because that's the way that they, without a visual cue, they use the smell of fermentation to decide which is the, the best choice for consummation. I wonder, it's hard to judge that. I wonder how much it may be to get a bit drunk. Like, why should we say that we're the only species that likes to have some alcohol? Maybe insects can get a bit drunk from that. Well, alcohol is toxic. So most animals will feel the effects of alcohol much more quickly. Humans, for whatever reason, during evolution, had a much higher tolerance to alcohol. And that's probably because we were selecting overripe fruits at some point that became like a bonus for how to judge what foods had the highest caloric density. Yeah, and the ethanol fermentation has also been probably one of the oldest fermentation techniques used. believe alcohol fermentation is the oldest either 1,000 or 15,000 years ago, found in Crescent. And there's been some speculation that agriculture actually started for beer production as opposed to bread making, which has always been the supposition. <laughs> it would explain a lot of things, though. How is the ethanol fermentation different from the lactic acid fermentation? You're selecting for a different microbe. So lactobacillus is a bacteria. Yeast is essentially a form of a mold. So their metabolic processes are slightly different. They're both consuming sugar, which is, makes it technically a fermentation. With the yeast, we typically are almost always talking about the Saccharomyces variety of yeast, which is actually a very small percentage of the yeast that we find in the wild. And depending on what we're talking about, there are specific people who have over the years created environments that are technically wild fermentations, but are essentially isolated communities of a particular type of yeast. So if you look at a beer producer like Cantillon, which does lambic fermentation, they're using a wild fermentation, but through the kind of course of their production, they've basically isolated a community of yeast that's now become endemic to the building. So in Cantillon, actually, their building started falling down, I think it was 30 years ago or 20 years ago or so, and they were going to tear down the brewery and rebuild the brewery. And as they started to take away parts of the roofs that were falling apart, the quality of the beer just turned terrible. And they mm. realized that the building itself, like cheese caves and cheese making, had become a critical part of what they did as a business. So they actually wound up building a glass structure that supported the interior old brewery structure. They kind of preserved this 
microbial haven, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happens in sake breweries in Japan, where there's some of them that typically will have their own yeast strains. And in Japan, the yeast strains are categorized by numbers, which is like how sake breweries would have registered them over essentially a thousand years. But then there's also a number of breweries, which like Lambic breweries will just have essentially allow wild fermentation that's been specialized. So you have a dominant, which basically becomes the main microbial agent in the fermentation. Okay, then let's get to the third type, which is acetic acid fermentation. So acetic acid fermentation is the breakdown of alcohol actually into acetic acid, also by bacteria. So it's acetic bacteria that's uh, doing that process. And it's in the same way that alcohol is a broken down sugar molecule, acetic acid is a broken down alcohol molecule. So it's a molecule that thrives in high amount of oxygen. And so typically vinegar makers will be pushing or trying to circulate their wine with a lot of air to essentially isolate in or create the particular environment they want for acetic acid. How would that look like in the field? You would have red wine and you would want to make red wine vinegar, would you add the microbe and then aerate it? It can be once you have, again, a lot of these microbes are airborne. So simply by leaving a glass of red wine out, it'll eventually turn into red wine vinegar. Mm. And that's just part of the process. So it's not necessarily about inoculating, although like most fermentations, if you do inoculate, you'll have a higher rate of success because you want to establish a dominance microbe to hit a certain end result. That's what brewers do and vinegar makers do. They're what you call pitching, which is adding a high dose of a certain microbe so that you can control the end result. Once you establish a dominant strain in a substrate of some kind, that dominant microbe will essentially outcompete other microbes. And each microbe has essentially its own kind of defenses. So in the skin, the case of acetic acid, it's producing acetic acid as a way of creating an environment that other microbes don't want to be in. With yeast, they're creating alcohol, which a lot of other microbes don't want to be in, except mm-hmm. for acetic bacteria. So the characteristics that we're still looking for are typically sort of defense mechanisms in a certain way. Interesting. And I've read that fermentation products provide enzymes that are necessary for digestion. If you want to keep a good microbiome in age, I guess fermented foods are the way to go, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a lot of studies showing that having a strong and varied microbiome is essential for both your mental health and also your physical health in terms of being a resistance. And then there's also a amount of food types which we can no longer digest. So infants have the ability to digest lactose to a gland that mammals have when they're born, but we quickly grow out of that. And by using or having a collaboration with lactobacillus, which will break down the lactose in that process, we're able to use dairy as a protein source or as a food source, which is very useful because the conversion of milk into cheeses also gave us a way to preserve those protein sources for periods of time when there was less available. Yeah, we made a food history season and In it, we talked about China becoming the second largest dairy nation. Interestingly, it actually doesn't make sense if you think about it, because the majority of Chinese are lactose intolerant. But most of what is consumed, or a lot of what is consumed, is infant formula. That makes sense, because most babies are able to convert to lactase. And on the other hand, also a lot of yogurt is consumed, 
which is fermented and therefore mm. less harsh for the stomach. In that case, you're both consuming a dairy product of some kind that's been broken down to be more digestible, but you're also consuming those enzymes and microbes which have done that process already. So you're bringing into your body the ability to be able to consume more uh, lactose. Interestingly enough, they found out that as humans began to herd and consume dairy products before they were actually able to consume lactose. So there'd always been like the supposition that those things had gone in parallel, but there's evidence now that it's they looked as the genealogy of herding populations in history, that there was a period of time where most people generally couldn't consume milk products, but they just went ahead anyway doing it. Humans, like most mammals, are essentially lactose intolerant as they move out of infantile age. But it's a small or relatively small percentage of humanity that is lactose tolerant. But the, again, the fermentation process, which like many of the fermentation processes, was breaking down a food's substrate into a more easily digestible one that was had more uh, protein and nutrient rich and nutrient accessible so that we were able to have a food that could be preserved for long times and was nutrient-rich. That's so fascinating. Also that it helps with anti-nutrients like uh, phytic acid, which you have in grains or nuts and seeds and legumes. I did also hear, though it's not fermenting, but that putting cashews in water overnight reduces anti-nutrients. That fermentation can also increase vitamin contents because it makes the vitamins more available than they would be in their default state. Exactly. So it can also reduce toxins. We made a spirit that we're going to release soon that's based off of 100% manioc. What's that? Manioc? Cassava and manioc are essentially the same roots. It's just in Brazil, it's called manioc. And it has a low level of toxicity depending on the variety of the species. And that toxicity is reduced during the cooking process. But we didn't necessarily want to cook it. So we were looking at some traditional techniques. And one of the used he used to be the head of production, but now it's like the head of everything at Empirical. Is originally from <laughs> Brazil. And he was saying, oh, traditionally, the indigenous people in Brazil would inoculate it with essentially like a koji mold. And I was like, yeah, it's not koji molds. It can't be because it's not in Japan, right? And then it turned out he was completely right. And then traditionally, they've been wrapping it in banana leaves, which had a level of aspergillus mold on it. And they, as- they basically mold over in the same way that you get a koji fermentation. And that molding fermentation would actually break down the toxins in the manioc to those not no longer poisons people. And as a result, they had a lightly alcoholic, lovely beverage. Each episode takes many dozens of hours of work. Please share Red to Green with your colleagues on Slack, Discord, or Teams. Or share one of your favorite takeaways on LinkedIn and link to the episode in the comments. So we've been touching on molding quite a couple of times when we have covered biomass fermentation, which maybe you could also describe as a molding process. Nobody ever used the term molding, and I'm wondering whether it's just not very palatable to talk about it. But how would you describe the general connection between fermentation and molding? I think you're right in that it's a difference in vernacular. So an alcoholic fermentation is actually a type of molding process, if we're going to get technical about it. So the yeast is essentially like a variety of mold. Typically, we'll have flavotoxins, which can be relatively dangerous to people, depending on what species it is. So it's over time that we're humans have 
through trial and error of isolated specific varieties of mold. One of the first sort of bio-isolations that I know of was in Japan when they sort of isolated Aspergillus cerise. They realized that the good kind of mold actually tasted really nice and wasn't killing you. <laughs> okay. Then that became the way that they started making ake and then in shoyu and a lot of the predominant strains that became the foundation of Japanese culture. And especially when Buddhism became a part of Japanese culture and they moved away from eating meat, looking for those ways of getting a high concentration of amino acids in like a, essentially a vegan diet in the case of Ryori, which is the Japanese temple food. They created all these fermentations as a way of both having a higher protein availability in their food, but also a way of saying we can make something as delicious as your chopped up animal. Mm, I'm having like a wild idea here. If microbes cause the breakdown of fruit, let's say, if you disinfect fruits regularly enough, would they stay fresh longer? Well, that's an interesting question. So I would say no. I, if you were to keep them in a completely antiseptic environment, mm -hmm. probably yes, but that's a very mm -hmm. difficult to do in a practical everyday situation. By removing endemic varieties, for instance, on wine grapes, they typically will have a light mold on them, which is like the natural fermentation which happens when the grapes are pressed. And then after pressing that mold, which is yeast, basically is able to access the sugar that's inside of the grapes and turn it into wine. The issue with disinfecting them and removing, to use air quotes, the good variety of mm -hmm. microbes, you also open up the possibility of something that could be potentially poisonous. In the same way that it's probably not a good idea to wash every day an antiseptic solution, you have a, essentially like a microbiome that's through evolution become protective to a certain extent. And you will have some sort of microorganisms. Something will eventually get into a substrate full of sugar and have a life there. And mm -hmm. in the case of like wine grapes, we just are particularly fond of the results. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that fermented foods are in general a good thing to take in depending on the type of fermentation. I mean, in your case, you're doing the ethanol fermentation, you're creating alcohol, but for the purpose of actually having something healthy, like kombucha, what kind of fermentation mm -hmm. is used to make a kombucha drink? So kombucha is a parallel fermentation. There's a common misconception about kombucha fermentation that it's caused by the sort of mother that floats on top of the liquid. So that's typically called a SCOBY, which stands for a symbiotic construct of yeast and bacteria, bacteria and yeast. That cellular biofilm is actually like a result of the fermentation as opposed to a cause of the fermentation. So mm -hmm. the microbes, which is a combination of yeast and bacteria, which have over time basically evolved to be symbiotic, essentially one organism where you have the yeast that's continually converting the sugars into alcohol and bacteria that's then converting the alcohol into acetic acid. So that's why you get a lightly acidic effervescent drink because in the both the yeast and acetic fermentations are creating uh, carbon dioxide as a byproduct. But in that case, also when you're doing kombucha batches, that's why it's also important to inoculate your future kombucha batch with relatively high dose, at least 10%. We often do 20% or you'll even do a higher variation if you're doing a continual fermentation where you're harvesting 
25% and then refilling your fermentation vessel with fresh substrate. But kombucha is a very interesting one because you do get a lot of the beneficial characteristics of fermentation. That is the ability to ingest beneficial microbes, which increases the variance of microbes in your own bio, bio zone. But it's also not too alcoholic and not too acidic. Um, so it has alcohol in it. Do you know what percentage usually? It obviously depends. Legally, at least in the United States, it's supposed to be below 0.5. And if you have a healthy kombucha, you'll typically stay within that range. You can push, like with most fermentations, by changing the amount of oxygen that is going through the fermentation, the temperature of the fermentation. You can actually get up to about 5% alcohol, but that's just pushing the microbe out of its preferred range. So in that sense, you're optimizing for what the yeast part of the kombucha microbe can do as opposed to the acidic acid component of it. And that's to go back to parameters of fermentation. You're typically talking about aerobic or anaerobic environments, the substrates, that is like how much food is there. Too little is not great. Too much can be also create a stress on the microbe. Temperature and salinity, those are the kind of main parameters which will control certain aspects of fermentation. What was the last one? Salinity, so whether there's salt or not. In the case of a, a lactic fermentation, typically in my experience, 2% salinity in a solution or environment is optimal for or at least creates enough of salt content that you uh, can isolate for lactic bacteria. So is kombucha overhyped? I love kombucha and I consume a lot of kombucha that I produce. I think as a sort of cure-all, it probably is overhyped. I think having a high variety of different microbes in your microbiome is very helpful. So I see it as like a very useful piece of a puzzle where you should be consuming a lot of different fermented foods and a lot of vegetables which tend to have a lot of wild bacteria and microbes on them to bring up the variety and density of your microbes in your system. If listeners could do one DIY fermentation, what would be the biggest return on investment for their time? Maybe in um, terms of health. In health for health, I would suggest trying and actually for you as a kimchi skeptic let's say skeptic <laughs> exactly i think it's very easy to do it just requires a little bit of salt and a leafy green of almost whatever variety you find interesting and then you don't necessarily have to add a lot of spice to it you can add a small amount or flavor it in whatever way but like electric fermentation is quite easy to do it's just like a vessel some salt and then essentially another vessel to isolate the environment from air. So you're adding a bit of pressure. Salt helps draw moisture out of the vegetable that you're fermenting. And you get a really beautiful end product after just about a week. So it's very easy to do and delicious and it's very good for you. We're still, at least in Denmark, in wild mushroom season. Lactic fermentation of mushrooms is super delicious and a great way of preserving them. Nice, nice. I think I may YouTube some how to do kimchi videos. So I'm also really interested in kombucha still, maybe. <laughs> kombucha is super easy to do as well. That's finding a person near you that is doing it themselves. So typically you'll have to start with a base of some kind. You can also get the microbes online, but then you're making a base that can be made out of almost anything. So 
You could do it with what's traditional is like a black tea, a tannin structure, and the tea actually gives the kombucha microbes a lot of nutrients to break down and use as fuel. But I've also done kombuchas with carrot juice that are absolutely delicious. Oh, very cool. When I was at the Food Hack Summit from Armin and the team, I got to taste your product from Empirical, one of the drinks. Mm -hmm. And it was an alcoholic beverage which had quite a strong fermented note. I was very curious, how is the fermentation that you are using to create your beverages different than the default? So the, what we do at Empirical is a little bit different in the fact that we make everything from scratch because at Empirical, we come to the proposition of spirits or beverages from, I would say, a chef's perspectives. And that is working with the best kind of raw ingredients and the best quality ingredients that we possibly can, which also means having a relationship with your farmers, which invariably gets you into some aspect of fermentation, even in that kind of part of the project. But for me, I wanted to have something that had a lot of complexity and nuance as part of the sort of canvas that we would eventually put botanicals on. And at Empirical, we look at fermentation more of a way of creating flavor and laying flavor. Most of our spirits, we actually start off with a koji fermentation, in our case, sticking pearled barley, soaking in water, steaming it, and then inoculating it with a mold called Aspergillus oryza. The mold creates the same end result as malting does, where the starches have been broken down to simple sugars. But by working with the microorganism, Aspergillus, we are creating a whole slew of secondary metabolites. So in sake making, for instance, the floral light, very sweet characteristics that you get, or you feel that define a sake, those are predominantly created in the koji making process. So by using that fermentation, we're already beginning and having like a complexity and nuance that we can build on. And then we use that koji mixed with malted grains to then make what's called a, a wash, which is basically soaking in hot water to extract those sugars and esters and polyphenols that are created in the aspergillus fermentation. And then we will then use a yeast fermentation or an alcoholic fermentation. We're looking at a flavor creation aspect. So we actually will slow down the alcoholic fermentation in the sense of trying to use that alcoholic fermentation to create as much flavor as possible. Like the muscle cells in your body, yeast has two metabolic pathways, one which requires oxygen and one which doesn't. So when there's availability of oxygen, the yeast is in more of a growth cycle. And that's where you get the more esters and polyphenols created. And then when it goes into anaerobic respiration, which is the alcoholic cycle, it's in a stress state. And so you get less flavor creation. So we actually slow down our fermentation to create as much flavor as possible before we allow the yeast to start generating alcohol. How do you slow it down? So we push a lot of oxygen as we move from our filtering system into the fermenters, and that creates an aerobic environment for the yeast, which then pushes them into a higher growth cycle and then when they later go into anaerobic respiration. So essentially it spends in our system more or less two days not making any alcohol whatsoever, which is terrible for the bottom line of the business, but very good for the flavor of the end product. Why is it terrible? Because it just slows down your production cycles? Yeah. Typically, a distiller would use 
a yeast called turbo yeast, which is an aggressive yeast that works very well at high temperatures, often hitting around 35 degrees Celsius, and can push an entire tank in between 24 and 36 hours, but is not optimized for a flavor profile. And we're always working with the yeast or any microorganism to have the flavor profile be of the highest priority. I guess our workhorse of uh, yeast is a Belgian Saison, mm-hmm. but depending on the spirit that we're doing, we'll often do a set of trials with between 12 and 20 kind of yeast strains, see if we can optimize the yeast of flavor characteristics with the substrate that we're fermenting. So while we've found that barley works very well with the Belgian Saison, we've recently started making a new product where we use sorghum juice. And for that flavor profile, we went with a, a Thai rice wine yeast, which just felt like it worked a little bit better flavor-wise. Okay. And then if you would have 50 million and you would be able to invest them in a certain solution that you find important, or it could also be a startup crush, not empirical, something outside of empirical, where would you put that money? I think there's a lot of indigenous food, which hasn't become mainstream. So working with indigenous communities to allow those communities of people to basically become entrepreneurs, I think is amazing. Every time I travel, I taste something that's fermented and super weird and amazing and just gives me an insight into their culture and community. So I'd probably do that. Yeah, I somehow can imagine this monthly subscription of weird fermented foods with stories attached to them. Yeah, I spent a week in Zimbabwe working with uh, communities of women who were teaching me of the different kinds of wines they make with wild Zimbabwe fruits. And every time I would taste something, I'd be like, are you kidding me? I'm never like, it was like this, <laughs> I don't know, hearing a new type of music or something like that. It was like oh. just mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah. exciting. Well, Lars, thank you for being on Red to Green. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and it's great talking to you. According to Spotify stats, Red to Green is in the top 5% most shared and followed podcasts globally. Whoop whoop. Please keep this going. If you haven't subscribed yet, do so in your app of choice to not miss out on future seasons. Also, check out our other seasons to get a deep dive into the food industry. A special thanks to Nikhil Menon for audio editing, senior audio editor Celeste Gupta, as well as Robert Griffin for doing a second review. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.